Good evening, everyone, and welcome to St. Anne's. This evening, we're truly privileged to welcome to our church as part of our continuing celebration of the 150th parish anniversary year, George Weigel, the most distinguished Catholic public intellectual in the United States today. This year, George himself is celebrating the 30th anniversary of his association with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which he led from 1989 to 1996, and where he has for many years been the distinguished senior fellow and held the William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. George is author of some 25 books and is the most widely syndicated Catholic columnist in the world. He is best known for his two-volume biography of St. John Paul II, the New York Times bestseller, Witness to Hope, which has been translated into more than a dozen languages, and its sequel, The End and the Beginning. His most recent work, The Irony of Modern Catholic History, published just a few weeks ago, explores the past two centuries of the Church's engagement with the modern world. Copies of this book will be available after his talk at the end of our session tonight, and all of that will be taking place in the rear of the Church. George received his bachelor's from St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, and a master's from the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto. He is the recipient of 19 honorary doctorates in fields including divinity, philosophy, law, and social science, and has been awarded the Papal Cross Pro Ecclesia et Pontifice, Poland's Gloria Artis Gold Medal, and Lithuania's Diplomacy Star for his tireless years of long support for the freedom of the Baltic nations and all of Eastern Europe. George, we are deeply grateful that you could be with us this evening to reflect on the theological significance of the parish in the Universal Church. I welcome George Weigel. Thank you very much, uh, Monsignor Watkins. It's a great honor for me to participate in this sesquicentennial celebration of what really is one of the crown jewels of the, the Archdiocese of Washington, St. Anne's uh, Church. On October 11, 1962, Pope John XXIII gave a remarkable opening address to the Second Vatican Council on its first day, to which we'll return in a few moments. But I want to begin uh, this evening's reflection with, with one sentence from that opening address, known from its first three Latin words as Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church Rejoices. In that uh, address, John Twenty-Third, who is often portrayed unfairly as kind of a portly Italian grandfather of no particular intellectual consequence, but who was in fact a quite accomplished church historian, specializing in the reforming episcopate of St. Charles Borromeo in, in Milan. Uh, in that opening address, John Twenty-Third said, history is the great teacher of life. History is the great teacher of life. So in order to understand what it means to be a parish in the Catholic Church in Tenley Town in the District of Columbia in the United States uh, in these first decades of the 21st century, I, I think it's important to locate this moment uh, in the sweep of 2,000 years of Catholic history. So I want to do that very, very quickly. 
because I believe, and I think this helps us get a, a sense of, of both the distinctiveness of this moment and the air turbulence within it. Uh, I believe we are living in one of the five great moments of transition in the 2,000 years of, of Catholic history. Over those two millennia, it is, of course, the same church because it's the same Lord, the same uh, baptism, the same faith. But the mode of being Catholic has evolved, developed uh, over time to meet the demands of preaching the gospel in any given cultural circumstance. The first of these great moments of transition began right at the beginning or very close to the beginning, about 70 AD, when what became Christianity definitively began to hive off from what became rabbinic Judaism at the time of the first Jewish-Roman War and the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple, an event that plays a large role in many of the writings of the New Testament. And that transition created what we call the early church. We sometimes think of it through the fog of 1950s Hollywood movies, The Robe, Demetrius and the Gladiators, all that stuff that shows up on Holy Saturday uh, before uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, and yet, the truth about that early church it was, is, is that it was an extraordinarily successful missionary enterprise. Historians today suggest that between a third and a half of the Mediterranean world had become Christian by the time of the Constantinian settlement in the early fourth century. Constantine, a very clever politician, whatever else was going on in his life, he was joining what he perceived to be the winning side. That early church had gone from a standing start, literally standing watching the Lord ascend, huh? uh, in 250 years to the conversion of somewhere between a third and a half of the Mediterranean world. That's pretty good work. That early church, in the aftermath of the Constantinian settlement and the churches up from uh, what had often been an underground existence, then gave birth to, as it gave way to, what we call patristic Christianity, the Church of the Fathers, the Church of Ambrose and Augustine, of the great Eastern doctors of the church, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzen, Gregory of Nyssa, Leo the Great, and Gregory the Great in Rome, a church in active conversation with classical culture, a church that translated the original Christian proclamation, what we call theologically the kerygma, Jesus is Lord, into the creed, into what we all prayed this morning. It was that encounter with classical culture that allowed the church to go from the simple but profound statement, Jesus is Lord, to what we prayed this morning. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, uh, etc. And that patristic way of, of being Christian, which those of us who pray 
the Liturgy of the Hours every day encounter almost every day in the writings of the Fathers of the Church, an incredible uh, mother load of spiritual insight, uh, had a pretty good run. That lasted for about 500 years until we come to the third great transition as that patristic church towards the end of the first millennium gave birth to, even as it gave way to, what we know as medieval Christendom. The church of Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas, the church of Dominic and Francis, Catherine of Siena, uh, the church that developed the Gothic, uh, perhaps the greatest architectural expression of Christian conviction uh, in history. The church that formed a remarkable synthesis between ecclesial community, society, state, even though there weren't states in the sense that we know it today, uh, a remarkably integrated Christian world. When I was a boy growing up in Baltimore up the road 60-some years ago, uh, if you were a, you know, a nerdy kid like me, the, uh, the sisters would give you a book in the seventh grade called The Thirteenth, The Greatest of Centuries, which I recently looked at again. It's got some interesting stuff in it, particularly about the church's role in founding universities. The whole university world uh, comes out of that medieval Christendom. But I did say to my wife, you know, the 13th, the greatest of centuries, it's an interesting idea, but you'd have to add anesthesia, modern dentistry, and single barrel bourbon, and then you've got yourself a really great century here. You can, this is a tough crowd. What is going? I mean, I know the Redskins lost. What did you expect them to do today? <laughs> One joy a week is enough. We just had a World Series, right? Okay, that medieval way of being Catholic lasted about 500 years, and it fractured, as we know, at the beginning of the uh, 16th century in the various Protestant Reformations, and out of that turmoil including the emergence of the early modern world, came what we call counter-reformation Catholicism, the, the way of being Catholic formed in the wake of this huge uproar in Europe, uh, a way of being Catholic formed primarily by the Council of Trent, which met over a 70-year period uh, throughout much of the 16th century. Uh, a church that we know through the mass that many of us grew up with, through the catechism that many of us learned, through the devotional piety that uh, many of us grew up with as well. This was the way of being Catholic that came to the Western Hemisphere. It was counter-reformation Catholicism that Columbus, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, and that brave band of, of English Catholics who landed on St. Clement's Island on March 25th, 1634. This is what they brought with them. This is what they brought with them. And when this parish was founded in 1869, the Catholic Church was at the apogee, the high point uh, of the Counter-Reformation. It was a church of institution building and institutional maintenance, especially in the United States. It was a church in which, out of which an enormous infrastructure was born, uh, 
paid for by largely working class people, giving a nickel here, a dime there, a quarter there. And it was an institution-building church that did that building often in the face uh, of great opposition. Uh, when this church was, uh, when this parish was founded in 1869, anti-Catholicism had deeply worked its way into the cultural texture of a lot of American life, despite the great mix master of the Civil War having worn off at least some of those, some of those edges. And a mere 18 years after this parish was founded in 1887, uh, a large-scale public movement called the American Protective Association was founded to protect America from what? From the Catholic Church. And one expression of that biased public atmosphere of the time uh, we know is the Blaine Amendments, one of which is being challenged at the Supreme Court today. This is a series of state constitutional amendments which forbid the use of public funds for, quote, sectarian schools. What was the parish at that point in Catholic history in that period? I think it was five or six things. It was the focal point of Catholic and ethnic identity. Again, when I was a boy growing up up the road, I suspect this was probably the case in Washington as well. You didn't identify yourself by your neighborhood. I'm from Hampton or Guilford or Roland Park or South Baltimore or whatever. You identified yourself by your parish. And you didn't even say, I'm from South Baltimore. You would say, I'm from Star of the Sea, if you were Irish. Or I'm from Holy Cross, if you were German or I'm from good counsel, if you were Polish. So the parish was a focal point of ethnic as well as religious identity. Secondly, the parish was, uh, and I mean this not in, an, in, an, uh, not in a uh, uh, derogatory sense, the parish was a kind of sacramental service station. Uh, the Church of the Counter-Reformation did not have a high sense of liturgy, the fantasies of young millennials today who imagine a Catholicism of the 1950s that in fact never existed, uh, and I know it didn't exist because I grew up in it. Um, despite that fantasy world, the, the Catholics just did not take liturgy very seriously. You went to Mass, out of a sense of obligation, and that's fine. But there was a weak sense of liturgy despite that strong sense of obligation. So the parish is where you went to be religiously serviced. On Sunday for mass, on Saturdays for confession, it's where you got married, it's where you brought your kids to be baptized, uh, it's where you um, uh, brought your dead uh, to be buried. Uh, it was a kind of one-stop shopping sacramental mall, but without a terribly highly developed sense of, of liturgy and everyone's participatory role uh, in that liturgy. 
it was a catechetical engine, uh, the parish, uh, of, of the Counter-Reformation of the first 150 years or so, 130 years or so, uh, of this parish. The parish is where you learned the basics of the faith. This was not only true in the United States. I remember when I was first in Poland almost 30 years ago, talking to the people who had made the Solidarity Revolution uh, just a year before and helped destroy European communism. And I, I said to one of the Solidarity-affiliated priests at the time, you know, explain to me how all of this happened. And he said, well, you know, all of those faces you saw at the shipyard gates in Gdansk or in other solidarity centers, those are the men whom we taught as kids in freezing parish church basements during the 1950s. And that was true here as well. The parish is where you learned your catechism. And that's what religious education meant. It meant to learn the basic formulas of the catechism, which was no bad way to learn. It set a foundation on which other learning could go on. And that is why the parish school, particularly in the United States, maybe even uniquely in the United States, was so closely identified with the parish. That was in part a reaction to this biased cultural surround that I was talking about a moment ago, Blaine amendments and all that stuff. The public schools uh, of the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century were really Protestant schools. Uh, it was the King James Bible that was read. It was a Protestant form of piety that was inculcated. It was a Protestant story uh, of the previous 400 or some years uh, that was taught. So in response to that, uh, the bishops of the United States very early on uh, mandated the creation of, of Catholic schools uh, in every parish, of which, of course, St. Anne's Academy is a, uh, is a, uh, a prime uh, example. And the school and the parish were really one entity, almost to the point on occasion when it seemed that the school ran, ran the parish. And that brings us to an interesting fourth point of what the parish was in that counter-reformation Catholicism. It was a test bed for the empowerment of women. A lot of talk about empowerment of women in the church today. And the church in the United States was largely run by women and has been for the past 150 some years. Women ran the schools, women ran the hospitals, women ran the social service agencies. And this was one of the few venues prior to the last 50 years in American life where intelligent, service-oriented, assertive women could find uh, a leadership role uh, in society. Then the parish was also a hub of civil society. It, has there been a parish history written for the sesquicentennial? I, I'm sure if you go through that history, you'll find dozens of organizations. Everything from the Knights of Columbus to scout troops to Daughters of Isabella to heaven knows what all. It was a, 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 a garden of civil society, what we now call civil society uh, institutions. And it was, uh, therefore, the parish was a great contributor 
to the rich associational life of American civil society, which again so distinguishes our country from, from other parts of the Western world. And of course, it would not be honest if we didn't add this to the mix, uh, the parish of the Counter-Reformation Church was a point of political organization. Uh, in many parishes, particularly in cities, Boston, New York, Philly, Baltimore, maybe not so much here, but certainly Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, the Northeast and the Rust Belt, if you will, there was a seamless connection between the local parish, all of these organizations I just mentioned, and the local precinct club or ward organization, almost always of the, of the Democratic Party. That, that was part of the mix as well. So that's what a, it meant to be a parish uh, at the time when, when many of us here were, were growing up. And to me, as I'm sure to many of you my age, uh, growing up in that period in the late 1950s, it seemed that this was the way things always had been and the way things always would be. We were taught in that catechism that I mentioned a moment ago that there were four marks of the church. Remember, church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Uh, the implicit message of the Catholic culture of the time, though, was that there was a fifth mark of the church. The church was one holy, Catholic, apostolic, and immutable. Always was this way, always will be this way. And that, of course, turned out not to be true. And the falsification of that immutability business did not start at the Second Vatican Council. It started actually four years before my grandmother was born. It started in 1878 when after the 32-year-long pontificate of Pope Pius IX, the College of Cardinals decided whatever else we're doing, we're not doing that again. So we're going to elect an old guy who's going to keep the chair warm for four or five years, and then, you know, we'll move on. The old guy was exactly as old as I am today. His name was Gioacchino Vincenzo Luigi Raffaele Pecci, and proving once again that you never know what's going to happen out of a papal conclave. This guy elected to be the placeholder after the longest pontificate in history proceeded to have the second longest pontificate in history until he was topped by John Paul II. Over those 25 years between 1878 and 1903, Pope Leo XIII, as I describe in the book, The Irony of Modern Catholic History, which all of you are going to flood to the back and buy at the end of this, doing your Christmas shopping early. Leo XIII set loose in the church. Dynamics of development, evolution, and reform that I call in, in the book, the Leonine Revolution, although that's perhaps an inappropriate term because this wasn't a kicking over of the traces, it was a genuine development of the church's self-understanding. This is true of the church's relationship to intellectual life, to science, to history, to the Bible, 
to the modern political world. It was Leo XIII who begins to gingerly explore the possibility that Catholicism and a constitutional democracy like the United States might actually work pretty well together. This Leonine revolution rippled through the church for about 80 years until precisely uh, 80 years after, after Leo was elected, uh, another old guy, Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, was elected pope on the thought that he would be a kind of placeholder. And while he did have a short pontificate, only four and a half years, John XXIII, in a sense, accelerated that Leonine revolution by calling the Second Vatican Council to do what? To focus all of the energy that had been set loose in the church over the previous four generations through the prism of an ecumenical council so that the church would have a new Pentecostal experience and come out of that experience prepared to be a church of evangelization and mission in the third millennium in the 21st century. If you read carefully that um, opening address to Vatican II that I mentioned at the outset of my remarks, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church Rejoices, you will find in there a kind of preview of the teaching of John Paul II and, and, and Benedict XVI on the, on the imperative of the church becoming again a missionary enterprise. John XXIII wanted the church to engage the modern world in order to convert the modern world. He did not suggest engaging the modern world for us simply to become the modern world with incense and bells and nice music and stained glass, he wanted to convert the modern world to what? To the truth of Christ, which he said in that opening address to Vatican II is not just truth for Christians, the truth of Christ is the truth of the world. This is the truth about everything. Now, whatever John XXIII's hopes for Vatican II, what happened 20, for the 20 years after the council was a period of some chaos and not a little bit of confusion. And then, precisely 100 years after the election of Leo XIII, God raised up first John Paul II and later Benedict XVI to give that Second Vatican Council its authoritative interpretation to find a connecting thread that would tie together the 16 documents of Vatican II and make them into a beautiful tapestry. And the thread that was discovered first at a synod in 1985 called by John Paul II and dominated intellectually by then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI. The thread was that the church is a communion of disciples in mission. Disciples because, as Benedict said so many times over eight and a half years, 
Catholicism begins with friendship with Jesus Christ. That, that's the beginning of everything. To embrace Jesus as Lord, to call him into our lives as a friend, to accept his offer of, of friendship. Come to me, all you who, are labor, who labor and are burdened. To enter into that relationship is the beginning of Christian faith. And yet for Catholics, that encounter with the Lord is not just a me and Jesus kind of thing. To encounter the Lord is to meet his mystical body in the world, which is the church. And the character of that church, as the fathers of the Synod of 1985 put it, is that it is a communion. It's not a voluntary organization, it's not a political party, it's not an economic entity. Uh, it's not a family, although it has some of the aspects of a family. It's not biologically generated. It's a communion. It's like a living organism in which the members of the mystical body of, of Christ relate to each other as they relate in no other way in their lives. They relate to each other as cells in a, living, in a living body. But that communion of disciples does not exist for itself alone. It exists to give away, to offer to others the gift it has been given. So a communion of disciples in mission. This is what John Paul II would emphasize throughout the second half of his pontificate when he spoke of the new evangelization. And this is the fifth great transition in the 2000 year history of the church. From the church of the counter-reformation, which everybody over 50 in this uh, room grew up in, um, uh, to the church of the new evangelization. Now, all of that is by way of getting us to the question that I was supposed to be talking about from the beginning here, which is what does it mean to be a parish uh, of the present and the future? I think that history helps us see that, and I'll draw that out in a moment. But we also need, following the instructions of John XXIII and Gaudet Mater Ecclesia and, and the council fathers themselves at Vatican II, we need to read what we sometimes call the signs of the times. And the most determinative sign of the times for us for thinking about this question of what does it mean to be a parish, what does it mean to be a Catholic today, the most determinative sign of the times is that we can no longer rely on the cultural air we breathe to help transmit the faith. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, maybe even 10 years from now, no one in the United States is going to be able to answer the question, why are you a Catholic, by saying, well, I'm a Catholic because my great-grandmother was born in County Cork, or the south of Poland, or Bavaria, or Normandy, or Guadalajara. Ethnic Catholicism as a transmission belt of the faith simply does not work under these cultural circumstances. Again, to go back, roll the camera, roll the videotape back 
60 years. The cultural air we breathed, particularly in intensely Catholic cities, uh, was, was generally supportive of the efforts of our parents and grandparents and the priests and brothers and sisters to transmit the faith to us. It certainly was not actively hostile. Today, no 15, 16-year-old can walk through a shopping mall in the United States without encountering one counter-Catholic signal after another. The, the air we breathe is not only no longer supportive, it's not even neutral, it's hostile. And we sense this all around us, and those of you with children and grandchildren, I'm sure, know exactly what I am, am talking about. In that circumstance, the new evangelization has come just in time. Because the faith is not going to be transmitted to future generations by osmosis anymore, or by family inheritance or ethnic inheritance. Faith has to be proposed. People have to be invited to meet the Lord. People have to be engaged in the process of learning all that it means to be a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a disciple in mission. And that means that parishes, which I think will remain for the foreseeable future, the bedrock of Catholic life in the United States, uh, that means that our parishes are going to have to think of themselves in a different way. We're going to have to think of the parish not as an institution to be maintained, but as a launch platform for mission and evangelization. And that is true of every institution in the church. That's true of our schools, that's true of our social service agencies, that's true of our healthcare facilities. They all have to become platforms for mission and, and evangelization. There are several specifics of that, however, that apply in a particular way to the parish of, of now and the future. I rattled off a list a moment ago of what parishes in, in Counter-Reformation Catholicism were. Let, let me suggest a few specifics of what parishes in the Church of the New Evangelization are going to have to be. First of all, the parish must be that place, that experience, where people learn what it means to be baptized. Catholics have in the main, unless you're an adult convert, and not an adult convert from another Christian communion, but an adult convert from uh, either a non-Christian religious community or from nothingness, Catholics have a very weak sense of baptism. How many of you here, please raise your hand, know the date of your baptism? That's better than usual. We're at about 5% here. It's usually 3%. Uh, when you go home tonight, um, dig out the file where you keep your Catholic paper and look up your baptismal certificate and learn the date and then celebrate it every year. Because you will be doing what St. John Paul II did. I first began to think about this when I was writing about his first pilgrimage to Poland 
1979, those remarkable nine days in June where you could, you know, the history of the 20th century pivoted in a dramatic way. But for our purposes here tonight, the most important moment in that was his visit to his old parish church in Vadovica, uh, the church of our uh, Lady of Good Counsel. Um, and what does he do? He makes a beeline to the baptismal font and he kneels down and kisses it. Why? Because he knew that that was the most important day of his life. The most important day of his life was not the day of his priestly ordination or his Episcopal consecration or his election as Pope. The most important day of his life was the day of his baptism, not only because that made everything else possible, but because that was what incorporated him into the body of the friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. To understand what it means to be baptized is to understand that at our baptism, either through the agency of parents and godparents, or if we were adults, happened directly. When we were baptized, each one of us was given that great commission that was given to the first apostolic band and recorded at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We were all told on the day of our baptism, go and make disciples of all nations. Everyone in the parish, everyone in the church of the 21st century is called to be a missionary. And mission territory is everywhere. Run the videotape back, those last moments of counter-reformation Catholicism, what was mission territory? Mission territory was exotic places, often illustrated in National Geographic, where brave men and women went sometimes to die in particularly gruesome ways in order to uh, offer people the possibility of becoming Christians. Uh, I vividly remember Lent in the late 1950s in the old cathedral school in Baltimore uh, where we got holy childhood boxes. Now we have these Operation Rice Bowl things. The Holy Childhood box, for those of you who were not privileged to do this, was a similarly shaped little thing. And if you could manage to save five dollars of your nickels and dimes over the six and a half weeks of Lent, you could name a pagan baby. And that's the way it was described. You know, you get a little certificate saying you have named, and then they would write down the name, of your, of your pagan baby. I think I did three of these. Um, and when I run into cardinals from the third world in Rome, I'm often tempted to ask, are you my pagan baby here? <laughs> you don't know what you owe me here. <laughs> That's the idea of mission. Mission territory was out there and missionaries were not us. That all has to be brought home. Everything is mission territory, your kitchen table, your neighborhood, your business, your life as a consumer, your life as a citizen, and everyone is a missionary who must measure 
the quality of our discipleship by how well we are by example or by actual invitation bringing others into that communion of disciples in mission. For the parish, this means, I think, that parish vitality, I won't say success, success is is the wrong word, but parish vitality is going to be measured in a different way. Uh, Most dioceses in the United States take a head count on a given Sunday uh, of the year, and then they compare that to other Sundays, uh, similar Sundays in previous years, and they say, okay, here's how we're doing. The real measure of the vitality of a parish is not that. It's how many people are brought into the church at the Easter vigil or on Easter every year. Uh, Vital, vibrant, new evangelization parishes are bringing lots of people, or as many as they possibly can, into the church. And the parishes that do that are parishes in which, over a period of five or ten years, the pastor has led everybody to understand this is everybody's job, not just the priest's job, it's everybody's job. And we're all in this mission business together. So the parish must be the experience where we learn what it means to be baptized and commissioned. Secondly, the parish must be a place of lifetime learning. About 20 years ago, maybe 15, I was asked to be the confirmation sponsor for a fine young man who had better remain nameless. Um, and at the, there was a confirmation in Southern Maryland, uh, dinner afterwards, and I said to this young man afterwards, okay, what did all that mean? And he said to me, well, what that means is religion class is over wrong answer, not not the right answer. Uh, In the church of the new evangelization, religion class is never over because there's always something more about this incredibly rich phenomenon we call the Catholic Church that we can learn. And why should we want to learn more? Well, because you never know what little piece of that rich Catholic tapestry is going to be the key to opening the door to someone else to either come back into the church or to come into the church for the first time. So the more we know, the more we can propose and the more we can give. This means, as I'm sure already happens here, but I have to constantly preach this gospel everywhere, homiletics in the parish of the future must be richly catechetical and theological and biblical. Uh, In this cultural environment in which we find ourselves, it's very easy to get smoggy vision. Reading the world through biblical lenses helps us see the world straight and helps us understand what is true and false, what is base and what is noble, what is life-giving, and what is death-dealing. And all of that, the ongoing Christian education, both in the parish and in our homes, the rich homiletic life, has to be ordered to mission. 
as opposed to what I have called now for almost 20 years Catholic light. Catholic light asks the question, how little do I have to believe and how little do I have to do to stay a Catholic? Now, is it any wonder that local churches, let's take the church in Germany for an example, who have been living that question for the last 50 years are dying? No, it's no wonder at all, because that's ultimately a really boring question. How little do I have to do and how little do I have to believe in order to stay part of this? And then once you start thinking that way, you begin to substitute all sorts of ersatz uh, things for the truths of the faith. I was in Munich uh, for some lectures and media work uh, for four days in June. Munich is at the heart of the present German attempt to redefine the Catholic Church. The parish I was in has 10,000 parishioners, meaning there are 10,000 people within its geographical boundaries who pay the German church tax. You know how many people are in that parish on Sunday? 200, 2%. 2% may be okay for milk. It's not good for the church. And when I asked the pastor, who seemed a very fine guy, uh, do you invite people back to be part of the sacramental community? He said, yes, I do. But they say to me, well, Father, I pay the church tax. What else do you want? So you've got to substitute piety going, going on here. Catholic light does not work. Catholic light has never worked anywhere in the world. And if we are going to continue to build the Catholic Church in the United States, which I think, for all of its faults, uh, is the most uh, living embodiment of the new evangelization in the, West, in the Western world, we are going to have to be a church of Catholic fullness, of all-in Catholicism of embracing the catechism in full and all of the other dimensions, including aesthetic, of Catholic life. Third, the parish must be a community that displays the effects of transformed lives to the wider community. Paul VI uh, said many times during his 15-year pontificate that the modern person listens more easily to witnesses than to teachers. And if he or she listens to teachers, it's because they're first of all witnesses. There's a lesson in that, <coughs> excuse me, for all of us, and that is that the quality of our lives, and by that I don't mean income levels and, and all the rest of it, I mean the human, spiritual, quality of our lives may well be the first thing that invites others into the possibility of entering the communion of disciples and mission. This is in fact what happened to go way back to that early church. As much as it uh, bothers theologians and writers to admit this, 
that conversion of the Mediterranean world that took place between the middle first century and, and the beginning of the fourth century did not take place primarily by argument. Uh, we didn't argue people into this. Paul tried that on the Areopagus and it didn't work terribly well. What did the trick, according to historical sociologists, was witness. It was the witness of lives lived nobly in a harsh and cold society. Uh, people who took care of <coughs> their ill and everybody else's ill at a time when sick people were simply abandoned to places like Tiber Island in the middle of the, of the river in Rome and, and left alone to either get well or die. Uh, people who treated women uh, with respect who honored their human dignity, who did not treat women as chattels, people who treated children as part of the human community and not simply as property, and then, of course, the witness of the martyrs. What that means for all of us today is that our proclamation of the gospel, while it can include all of those wonderful things like public processions on Corpus Christi and other days, uh, inviting the whole community in to experience the beauty of this church and the music that's performed here. All of that has to be accompanied by service. It has to be accompanied by outreach to people who have no one else to reach out to them. Uh, and I don't need to go through the infinity of ways that that can happen in an urban parish like this. And finally, in the fourth place, uh, the parish must be formed for mission, for lifetime learning, and for service by beautiful and dignified liturgy. Uh, the transformation of the parish from what I called, perhaps somewhat unkindly, but I didn't mean it that way, the sacramental service station to the liturgical center of a community is absolutely integral to all of this. Because it's in the liturgy, it's in beautiful, dignified worship that the saints, all of us wannabe saints, are equipped for mission. And in the beauty of the liturgy, when the liturgy is celebrated beautifully, as I know it is here, uh, with all of those things that go to make up for beautiful liturgy, beautiful space, beautiful music, beautiful decorative arts. That beauty can be an opening wedge uh, to help people rediscover truth and goodness. Ancient philosophers talked about the three transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. Well, much of our culture has lost touch with truth you know, there's your truth and my truth, but nothing called the truth. We have a fierce argument going on in this country about what is goodness. If you don't think that's the case, ask Justice Thomas or Justice Kavanaugh and you'll find out. We'll run back the videotape on those hearings. Um, so how do we get people back in touch with truth and goodness? Well, it might be through beauty because an experience of the beautiful is one that you know is a truly beautiful experience, and you know that it's a good experience. To experience something beautiful, whether it's liturgically, musically, aesthetically, 
humanly speaking, is to be opened up again to truth and goodness. And beautiful and dignified liturgy contributes to the fellowship of the parish amidst cultural fragmentation and what I fear may well be, if not in the immediate future, then certainly in the medium term future, times of persecution for serious Catholics, which can take many forms, doesn't necessarily mean being thrown into prison. It may mean professional um, distress. Uh, it may mean personal uh, discomfort. The fellowship experienced in the worship of the church helps us to cope, helps us to uh, get through that cultural fragmentation and to face those times of, of persecution. If 150 years ago the founders of St. Anne's Parish imagined uh, what they were building to be something analogous to a vibrant Catholic village, you know, church, school, associations, etc. Even a vibrant Catholic enclave. Today, St. Anne's and every other Catholic parish must reimagine itself by analogy to Launch Complex 39 at the John F. Kennedy Space Center from which 50 years ago, 12 days from now, Apollo 12 was launched on the mission that would result in the second man landing on the moon. Yes, we must maintain what we have been given as a patrimony, but we maintain it now in order to make it a launch pad for mission. And that mission is nothing less than the conversion of a deeply wounded and badly confused culture to Jesus Christ, who is the answer to the question that is every human life. Thank you. Thank you. So we have some time for some Q&A, if anyone would like to do so. Natalie is available with a microphone here. And please raise your hand and ask George any question you have related to his talk. And we'll be happy to listen to you and hear from George. Would you have any suggestions <clears throat> of how Catholics can, um, when they try to answer questions, confronted to them because of media attention to, to bad things that are happening. What, what are the most effective ways of doing that, both within the church and with, as an individual? Well, uh, I think the, the answer to this kind of relentless media um, uh, obsession with certain facets of Catholic life, most of which are actually in the past, um, is going to have to come from lay people primarily, can't come from bishops. Bishops simply do not have the credibility to respond to this now. That, that may be unfair in many cases, but that's the reality of the thing. Uh, I think local pastors are in, in better shape in responding to that. 
what I do is I say to people, yeah, we've had some serious problems. In fact, if you look at the data seriously, Catholic Church is the safest environment for young people in the country today. Uh, we are doing a far, far better job of creating safe environments for young people than the public schools are, than the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts are, et cetera, et cetera. And we wish to help them. You know, we've actually, we were not doing this right. And, and we now have learned how, some things about how to do it right. Uh, and, and we think we can be of help, but we're afraid we're not going to be asked if there's still this um, uh, portrait being painted uh, of the Catholic Church as an uh, environment of, of child rape, which is simply not true in the degree to which it, it's being pointed. Um, I think it's very important in um, handling these questions to remember that a lot of people, whether directly or indirectly, have been touched by what is a societal wide, wide plague. I mean, the, the, the sexual abuse of young people goes on all over the place. It happens most frequently in families, which is the most horrible thing uh, of all uh, to imagine. And so we, you know, calm, steady, compassionate uh, response is um, uh, required. You know, as for the media stuff, um, uh, I, you know, when we went through this whole uh, business again 15 months ago in the summer of 2018, and there was one story after another coming out, and my people in my parish up in Bethesda were really getting upset, and I said, look, you don't believe the paper about anything else. Why do you believe it about this? You know, come on, little, a little, bring a little of that critical sensibility that you bring to the newspaper, to its coverage of us. Uh, not all of it is wrong, but a lot of it is, is framed in, in a certain way and carries with it certain presuppositions that are just frankly false. Uh, my favorite episode of that was, I've been NBC's uh, Vatican guy for 20 years now. And I've had a generally quite good experience with, with colleagues there. Uh, but uh, during the last papal interregnum in the weeks between uh, Pope Benedict's abdication and the election of Pope Francis, I was doing a lot of um, late night Rome, early evening television, uh, and I was, I was once on Chris Matthews' program on, on MSNBC. And it's midnight or 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning, so I'm in a, I'm in a cranky mood anyway. Um, and Chris starts going on and on about, well, the next pope is going to have to make sure that they're married priests because if they were married priests, there wouldn't be all these abuse problems. And I just snapped, and I, I looked in the camera, and I said, Chris, Marriage is not a crime prevention program. Producers are applauding behind the cameras. Um, that's not what I'm recommending everybody do, but uh, that's, um, that seemed the appropriate response uh, on that occasion to that individual. Hope that's of some help. So Mr. Weigel, thank you for being here with us. Uh, I guess I, I know that only nuns and monks take a vow of geographic stability, but
but it certainly seems like decades ago we lay people were much more stable in our, our living arrangements and would stay in the same city, often in the same parish uh, for our lifetimes. That's much less common now. How does that affect our ability to be effective missionaries while we are members of a parish? Yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, I, uh, I know you've been in this parish for a long time, 30 years, I think you told me. My wife and I have been in the same St. James on Old Georgetown Road for 35 years. I think we may end up in the Guinness Book of World Records here eventually. Um, and, and ours is actually a very stable, there's a stable core to the parish. Uh, we're all grandparents now. We were parents with young children 35 years ago. But a lot of that has remained, and, and I think that's been helpful for the life of the parish, as it's gone through two demographic cycles over that 35-year period. It's a real challenge. Uh, it's a real challenge. And uh, I think that's why it's important for parishes to foster programs for new parishioners that connect people who've been here for a while to people who are just getting here. Uh, this is a particularly challenging environment because of what's right next door. Uh, on the other hand, that is a target-rich environment. Uh, you've got this huge university full of confused kids uh, who, do, whether they know it or not, are looking for what we have to offer. And to figure out a way, you know, to, to do that is, is really, um, would really be important for this, because that's always going to be here. And, and if, if you get a, a, a serious program of engagement with, with American University here going, that'll, that'll go on. Um, I loved it. I was actually, uh, I've told the present pope about this, and I think it stunned him. Uh, I said, we're in something of a golden age of campus ministry in the Catholic Church in the United States, surprising as that may be. And I mean, there are remarkable campus ministries all over the country, but the crown jewel in that is at, of all places, Texas A&M, which has a campus ministry parish on the campus with 5,000 people in it every Sunday and which has produced more religious vocations, priesthood, and consecrated life in the last 25 years than Notre Dame. At Texas A&M, where Catholics are 10% of the student population. Now, A&M is a very distinctive place. The first time I was down there, I came back and said to my wife, I've just encountered the only institution in the United States that skipped the 60s. You know, they just went from 1958 to, you know, 1988 without, you know, getting too clogged up along the way. But that's a real, that's a real opportunity here. And um, I know other great parishes in the country, Father Monsignor Watkins and I have a dear friend, Father Scott Newman in, in Greenville, South Carolina. He's been cherry picking kids out of Furman and faculty out of Furman. Uh, for years, and he has a very full Easter vigil every year uh, because of that. He even gets some from Bob Jones, which is even harder, uh, harder work uh, sometimes. So think of that as, you know, target land. Uh, when we think of uh, conversion, that's our, that's our mission. We think at first of that greater world out there, yeah. but we have another problem 
the victims of Vatican II gone wrong. That is to say, we need to convert some of our fellows in our own in our own parishes. Yeah. Do you have any specific? Uh, Yes, everybody should buy The Irony of Modern Catholic History, which is the roadmap for how we got from there to here, and I think a way out. Uh, the reason I wrote that book was to try to set this moment in a context that led people to a sense of hope uh, for the future. And I fully confront in the book the confusions after the council and try to explain First of all, why the council was necessary. Secondly, what its five key documents actually taught and why all of this points us in the direction, you know, not of becoming uh, another form of dying liberal Protestantism, uh, but of becoming the church of the new evangelization. So uh, that's, par pardon the authorial uh, 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 reference there. But I think, that's, I think that we have to help people see that the council was intended to revitalize us for mission. That's my answer. For those of you who don't know Ralph McInerney, he was a very distinguished philosopher who um, also wrote about 30 mystery novels. Uh, the Father Dowling series, Sister Teresa series, and then in the last 15 years of his life, he wrote a set of Notre Dame mysteries in which he kill, systematically killed all of his faculty enemies, <laughs> artfully disguised, <laughs> and had a local uh, detective solve, solve the mysteries. Great fun. Dr. Weigel, yes. thank you for your, for your talk. My name is Father Ivan. I belong to a community, St. John Society. We work at American University with Monsignor Watkins that is hosting us in this parish. We live close by. So we have good news to share with you. Our campus ministry is also working at American University, which is pretty amazing through the grace of God. And many kids are coming to the evening mass, and so things are good, or are better at least, than they used to be. My question is, you said that the United States, in your opinion, is somehow a place where the church, or the, maybe the best place, that's how you express it, where the church of the new evangelization is, um, is embracing takes place, and I am from Argentina, but I somehow, uh, I agree with what you say. I, I see it as well, so many resources, human resources and initiatives to engage the new evangelization, but I would really like to hear why. Why do you think that is the case? Um, I think it's, well, there's a, you, you could, you know, slice and dice that answer any number of ways. Um, <clears throat> I do think it has something to do with the fact that the church in the United States, uh, bishops, priests, the living uh, communities of women religious, and an enormous number of lay people took John Paul II more seriously than the church in Canada, or the church in Latin America, or the church in Western Europe. You look at something like FOCUS. There's nothing like the FOCUS missionary program. For those of you who don't know this, FOCUS is an acronym, Fellowship of Catholic University Students. It's a kind of Catholic Peace Corps where recent college graduates, after an intense training period, go back to campuses for two years of, of missionary work. So it's, it's young people to young people mission work. There's nothing, there are 150 campuses now. 
There's nothing like this anyplace else in the world church, and it's a direct outgrowth of World Youth Day in Denver in 1993. The founder, Curtis Martin, was inspired uh, by that event to think big. Uh, I think the influence of John Paul II on, on the younger clergy in the United States, I will include Monsignor Watkins among the younger clergy uh, in the United States, is enormous, and that makes a big difference. Uh, these, are young, these are men who believe that the priesthood is about the empowerment of everyone for mission, and that, that just doesn't happen in a lot of other places. Um, then I think we have had a kind of parallel Catholic intellectual life, not university-based, but think tank-based, institute-based, journal-based, magazine-based in the United States that simply hasn't happened anyplace else. There's no first things in Western Europe. Um, there are none of the really now quite fine online Catholic resources that have been developed here. And that's largely the result of lay people uh, who have taken the John Paul II vision of the church of the 21st century and the, and the third millennium uh, seriously. You know, resources obviously make a difference. I've just been trying to help uh, focus, expand its work uh, <clears throat> in Europe, and it's very difficult because Europe simply does not have the culture of philanthropy that exists in the United States. People are not used to giving money to support this sort of thing. So when you, you go to even quite wealthy people in Europe and say, will you support a focused missionary, you know, for the tune of $20,000 or whatever, for a year, they just look at you and think, well, why isn't the government doing that? You know, because that's, that's their idea of how university life works. So we've been benefited by that for sure. Um, those are the things that, that occur to me right off, but I, I do think, and I think John Paul II understood this, that he was taken far more seriously here than just about any place else. That doesn't mean it was perfect or the reception has been seamless uh, or there, there isn't a lot more to do, it just means that it's better than, than what you see in a lot of, a lot of other places. Uh, and the reconstruction of the American hierarchy, American Episcopate during his pontificate was, was surely an important part of this. But even more important, I think, was the reform of seminaries. Uh, because we now uh, have uh, a really impressive cadre of, of men ordained in the John Paul II years and, and afterwards who, who really do believe in this church of, of mission and evangelism. We have time for just one more quick question. Okay. Oh, am I it? Dr. Weigel, my name is Jack Rashad and I've been in the parish since 71. I don't know how that adds up. I want to thank you for your comments, and I want to thank Mr. Cohen for helping to invite you to come here. Uh, I appreciated very much your cultural point, the culture changes in the United States. 
They took me as a parent by surprise, and I've been regretting it ever, ever since. Um, I would suggest a couple of points. There's more than one university within the parish boundaries. We have the UDC, the University of the District of Columbia, and we have the law school from Howard University. So our brothers and sisters from Argentina have a lot of work ahead, uh, and I hope they can get to it. Um, I do think there's a couple of things specific to St. Anne's uh, that I would point out. One is, during a lot of my life in the parish, um, I had the feeling that the parish was building a moat between itself and the rest of Tenleytown. We have 20,000 people living in the parish and another five or 10,000 who come to study and so on and so forth. We should, I think, be reaching out to them. And I appreciate your comments in that direction. I also think um, that not all liturgies reach out to all peoples. I don't know how a single pastor can straddle all these divides, but they are divides at time, and I think we have to recognize it. I hope uh, that we can fulfill your dreams for this parish. I think they're valid, and I applaud you for stating them. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Um, I think that uh, part of that liturgical, <coughs> excuse me, uh, fragmentation, uh, you know, can can change over time, as as this question of owning your baptism uh, becomes more and more a part of everybody's life. Um, uh, I don't know what the sartorial habits of this parish are. I am now one of the five men at the 10 o'clock mass at St. James who wears a suit to mass on Sunday, okay? Why do I do that? Um, I wear a suit every day during the week. I'd be happy not to wear a suit. Uh, I do it because uh, a long time ago, I was brought into the idea that I am not simply a spectator, that along with the priest celebrant, I am offering the Lord to the Father uh, through a spiritual intention to do so. And that if I'm doing that, I ought to look better than I might otherwise look. When I see people coming to, to Mass as if they were heading for the beach, uh, I'm sure the Lord is not offended. Um, he's got other things to worry about. But I do wonder whether people have internalized the sense of their Christian dignity. I mean, we used to dress for church for a lot of reasons, but one of them was as an expression of that baptismal dignity. I don't want to make too big of a point about this, but it, it does strike me that the more that people understand what it means to be baptized, which means you are priest, prophet, and king. You are, in your baptism, you become empowered to offer true worship in many ways, to speak the truth, and to be a servant leader. The more we all understand that, I think then the more our worship will be, will be coherent across different tastes and experiences. Um, 
and uh, we might, you know, restore a little bit of um, the uh, the dignity of, of worship that has often got lost uh, in the chaos period uh, that we've all lived through. In any event, thank you all very much. I look forward to meeting you in the back. Happy to sign books. Thank you for having me. One reason why we chose to have this lecture in the church and not in another meeting room uh, was precisely because this is at the heart of Catholic identity, which breeds the mission. Uh, there is no Catholic parish without the Holy Eucharist. I think that is fundamentally and universally the case from day one, 2,000 years ago, when our Lord celebrated the first Mass until this day. And so it's appropriate that we're here in this sacred space to talk, talk about Catholic identity and mission. And for that reason, we have a beautiful Mass here at 7 p.m. and we have to move on to make that possible. Grateful to the fathers of the St. John Society because they make this incredible evangelization to the students at AU. And to take up Jack Rashad's point, then we're gonna ask the fathers to work at UDC and Howard and bring in on more of those seminarians from Argentina because I need the help, I can't do it alone. But also, thank you George for being with us. He'll be in the back to sign books. We also have our beautiful uh, 150th uh, candles that have the image of St. Anne, Our Lady, and commemorative cards. So let's do that efficiently and then make way for the 7 p.m. Mass to do their rehearsal with their beautiful music. And we thank you all for coming tonight and thank you George again for being with us.